We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. NFL podcast. It is Thursday, March 4th. I am your host, John McCagney, joined as always by Mario Puig. We are getting closer and closer to the new league year, so we're starting to see some roster trim downs in advance of free agency getting started. Um, We saw that on Wednesday with with a couple uh, news items here, so we're just going to dive right in, but we also got a lot of good stuff to get to today. We're going to examine some of those roster cuts. We're also going to get into a couple of upcoming 2021 uh, rookie running backs, examine their current ADPs and and the sort of narrative surrounding them. We're going to be talking about Travis Etienne um, and Kylan Hill both, uh, so stay tuned for that. And then we're also going to get into some mid-round receivers in redraft. We're going to be getting into guys like Will Fuller, uh, getting into guys 
uh, like Golden Tate or not Golden Tate necessarily, but that's the news, John. That's the news. I'm I'm already mixing things up. You're, th- you're thinking of uh, like my number one target at receiver this year, DJ Chark, um, <laughs> or one of my main fades, uh, Brandon Ayuk, guys like that. Yes. So diving into those, um, so that that'll be the the bulk of today's show. But Mario, let's lead things off in New Orleans. We got an interesting situation here where New Orleans cuts loose both Jared Cook and Josh Hill, really thins out that tight end depth chart. Um, so I think the initial reaction is just, is this Adam Troutman season now? Um, does this mean that New Orleans is going to be active in the free agent market for tight end? How is that shaping up? Uh, so just first of all, what are your thoughts on Cook now being a free agent? Well, Cook is a guy who was really fast coming into the league, and so even though he's old, maybe still can run a little bit. Uh, I know we saw like Delaney Walker's trying to make a comeback at 36 or 37 or whatever, so I don't know when it is that these guys actually expire versus when they just kind of stop getting job offers, and I don't know where Cook falls in any of that. Like For all we know, uh, the question of what he has left could just be a moot, a moot question because maybe he just won't get a job because he's... You know, he's just Jared Cook, and he's 33 now or whatever he is. Uh, but for Troutman, it's pretty interesting, I think, because uh, as long as Taysom Hill isn't the quarterback there anyway, there there could be a decent number of targets available for that position. Like, Cook, of course, had a decent number of targets. It's just that these targets with Troutman would probably look different. They probably won't be in the same part of the field. Like, one of the things that I hated about the Saints offense going into last year was how Jared Cook was their primary deep threat. As, a, as an aging tight end, he was their best deep threat. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's not the case with Troutman. Like, he's not a deep threat guy. He's more of a uh, – I don't even know who you'd compare him to ex- exactly. Athletically, he's actually very similar to Dan Campbell, who was the, the tight ends coach there before the, the Lions hired him. But unlike Dan Campbell, who was just a blocking specialist both at Texas A&M and in the NFL, uh, Adam Troutman caught a lot of passes at uh, Dayton. whatever the – Go Flyers. Yeah. So – Maybe not a real school, but a lot of <laughs> catches there. Like he had you know, 111 catches in his final 22 games, caught uh, 67 passes in his first 20 games. So it's four years of production. He's a, he's a little bit advanced age. Like I think he was a, a red shirt that whole time, but he was he was a really effective receiver there. And we can't really tell from afar how much it means, but he played. So he, we don't know how much that'll carry over the, to the NFL, especially given that. Troutman did not run many routes last year. Like he did a lot of blocking and that's, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like if he's, if he's a good blocker, that's a good way for him to push for 800, 850 snaps. And the more snaps, the better always. So he's, he's showing an ability to like, he's shown that he can give coaches a reason to put him on the field, even if he's not catching the ball. So maybe he can just start catching the ball too. Now that cook is gone and maybe, you know, Hill, Hill was another one. He was just a blocker. So I don't think his exit means a whole lot, but uh, it's a lot of snaps that they have to replace at once. And with a shortage of, of obviously good candidates, like I guess Garrett Griffin could be their tight end too or whatever. Uh, But it won't, I, I would be pretty surprised if Griffin is the kind of guy that they leave meaningful targets to outside of a few, you know, tosses in the flats here and there Uh, basically plays that, that, try to keep the defense honest. Um, but no, mainly he should block. And Troutman, as long as they don't bring in another tight end who's a pass-catching specialist, Troutman should get a lot more pass-catching work than he did last year because it was one of those things like uh, Cook just hogged all those reps. They knew right. that they couldn't justify Cook as a blocker, so when there were reps 
for tight end routes, they knew they had to give it to Cook for Cook to justify himself. And now they can say like, well, what about Troutman this time? And he ran he ran only like a four eight or something. Correct. He had a really good three cone on a pretty big frame. So yeah, he was ninety six percentile in the cone and seventy fifth in the shuttle. So like impressive with the short area change of direction stuff. Yeah, so when you're big and you can change direction like that, that gives you hope of being like at least an Austin Hooper kind of tight end where maybe he can't hurt anyone on down the seam or something, but maybe he can get open on eight yard curls like Jason Witten kind of stuff too, like those kinds of routes. And I have no idea whether he's good at it, but the opportunity seems to be there. And the last time he had the opportunity, he did very well with it. That's that's right. And, you know, a very small sample as a rookie as far as like his involvement in the passing game, just 16 targets, but did catch catch uh, 15 of them. So that that's obviously relatively encouraging. But what do you think just kind of moving forward with this Saints passing offense. I mean, we, we still haven't seen Drew Brees officially retire yet. I, I think that if it's not Brees, I assume it's going to be Jameis Winston, but kind of like a weird limbo that, that New Orleans and, and its respective passing attack is in right now. So, you know, if it is Jameis Winston, is there something in his tendencies where you'd expect, you know, a lot of tight end usage or is would like Winston almost be bad news uh, for, for Troutman? Or is Troutman's just kind of increased role just enough to smooth it over regardless. Well, Taysom Hill would be the worst case scenario just well, because yeah. setting aside that he's a really bad passer and it won't work if they try to make him a starter. Uh, he takes so many reps away from the passing game and the running game with his carries. So they have to give Hill a lot of carries and that's that's enough to kind of make it just a, a real uphill sort of issue for, for Troutman to get any usage. And even if he's really good, the usage might be so muted that it just doesn't really make enough noise for fantasy owners, uh, fantasy investors, whatever. So I think Jameis, even though he's more of a chucker, it's just for the fact that he's not a runner makes him a categorical upgrade over Hill. And uh, I don't know if it would, I don't know how much Peyton would change his designs for Winston. Like, I don't know why you would sign Jameis Winston to try to do a Drew Brees offense. I can imagine Sean Peyton though, being just smart enough as a coach, uh, having good enough, broader vision as a, as a designer that he could reformat his offense to more better, to better suit Jameis Winston's tendencies. Uh, if he, he, as far as Winston and tight end specifically go, I, I don't really have a good sense on that. Like obviously he didn't, he didn't throw it to, to OJ Howard that much when he was last in Tampa, but I don't know how much to blame Arians for that. Right. So uh, I, I think, I think with Troutman, there's, there's a lot that's still up in the air. And if you're kind of if you're looking for a tight end bargain in drafts, I would just I, I would think he's like a good candidate to qualify, but you should just be careful to not truly chase it. Like it's not worth chasing. It's yeah, worth, and, and to it's to your point on the chasing, yeah. sorry sorry to cut you off there, but oh. uh, to. I, I went ahead and looked. I mean, there's only three drafts worth of sample that I'm looking at as far as ADP from the last 24 hours. But uh, going just inside the one, just inside 160, and ahead of guys like Hooper and Ertz in the last 24 hours. So that that's a pretty emphatic. You know, people are yeah. are really jumping at the chance to to get in on Troutman. It seems like. Yeah, I guess I can see why. Like, I I, I don't want to argue against making that pick, but. I think I would be a little cautious about it. I, I don't know. It's it's so hard to tell what's going to even happen with Ertz, you know, but the, the idea of Ertz just being a backup or like not playing seems pretty, pretty slim chances to me. And I think he only needs something like 600 snaps to project for as many targets as Troutman would over 800 or something like that. So I'd, I would keep Ertz ahead. Uh, I, sorry. Who's, who's the other one? that he's uh, Austin Hooper. 
Hooper, yeah, I would take Hooper too, but I, I can under, I understand why people would think he's bad after last year, and uh, I happen to think he's good and was misused, but Stefanski used him wrong already once. There's not much objective reason to think he'll use him. Yeah, the Harrison right Bryant might time. still be getting better too. Yeah, he might be. Uh, I would just more so be worried that because Hooper is not a bad blocker, uh, whereas uh, Bryant probably is just because he's yeah. too skinny to do it. Uh, they do this thing where it's like they give the they give the work to, to Hooper to block because he's more qualified at it, even though he's a better receiver, just because they know they can't put Bryant in a blocking role. So uh, there's there's some ways that could go wrong for Hooper, but they're paying him a hell of a lot of money. And I, I feel like the GM if, or the owner would kind of be like, hey, Kevin, what, why don't you maybe give those Bryant routes to the guy we're paying uh, 15 times as much as Bryant and, uh, or cut Hooper? I don't know. Um, but Hooper, Hooper can do stuff. He just can't do everything, and the Browns asked him last year to do what he shouldn't be doing. Right, so that, uh, that leaves Hooper as kind of a complicated asset for, for uh, yeah. fantasy purposes, uh, you know, especially if you're targeting you know, probably your tight end, too, at that at that point, or if you're kind of punting on tight end, and, and those are your, your TE1 uh, considerations, maybe Troutman. I keep Ertz ahead of both of them. Okay, okay. That, that definitely makes uh, sense. We'll have to see what, what uh, his situa- situation ends up being in Philadelphia or elsewhere. Um, speaking of guys on the move going elsewhere, uh, Golden Tate gets released on Wednesday, you know, so obviously that that leaves something open for the Giants. Just taking a, a cursory glance at, at you know the way that their receiver alignment looked uh, last year, Sterling Shepard kind of split his his reps between uh, outside and the slot. Tate almost exclusively um, working out of the slot. So you figure maybe this is a this is a chance for the Giants to move uh, Shepard into the slot full-time keep Darius Slayton outside and maybe that makes the Giants a candidate to go after one of these you know kind of high-end receivers in the first round potentially yeah it could be I don't know what Joe Judge has as far as like player personnel tendencies it's hard to it's hard for me to get a feel of like how much the power splits between him and Gettleman and who knows what either of them are thinking they seem they seem to me like the kind of guys that can kind of come up with any idea if they think about it too long. So I don't, I don't know what they are, are liable to do or likely to do, but Slayton, in my opinion, is still really good. I know people, the, I, I'm guessing the general narrative on him was like, Oh, he was just a flash in a pan as a rookie. And uh, we should have known he was a fifth round pick. He could only, you know, that was, that was going to be his best year. And I think those people are wrong. I think Slayton is still clearly very good. And uh, the, the problem of course, is that uh, you would ideally have, two good outside receivers, uh, even if you're moving Shepard into the slot. And I think you would ideally move Shepard into the slot. And he, he's he's always played there when Tate was hurt the last two years, and then they'd move him outside when Tate wasn't hurt. And he'd be pretty good at both, but in the slot, he just he, he profiles really well. And uh, so I, I think those two are great. I, can't, I, guess I, get, I guess what it comes down to is how much do they put on their third functioning receiver, even if it's technically a starting outside receiver? Like, do they... Do they want that player to be as good or better than Slayton, or do they think something more along the lines of we just need that guy to be, uh, you know, give us 700 good reps and head to the bench and two wide because we stick with Slayton and Shepard and we go two tight ends or this amount. I don't know what they have in mind exactly, but they do have a draft pick in the range of the draft where it would make sense for them to be looking for someone like Devonte Smith or Jalen Waddle, uh, somebody like that. 
And if the problem, is, of course, with all of these guys, aside from Shepard, I guess, like Shepard playing in the slot makes him less vulnerable to Daniel Jones's issues. But Daniel Jones is not good. And that hurt Slayton a lot last year. It'll continue to hurt him relative to what he can do. So if they do add another good receiver, that would be especially concerning for Slayton's share percentage. But uh, to some extent, it would even be concerning for me for Shepard, just, just in the sense that I think Shepard could be I don't know, a 100-catch player in the right offense. Like I think he's clearly a really good player. Uh, the concussions are a concern, but the skill is not. He was a really good player at Oklahoma. He's been good in the NFL. He's just kind of been – he's been playing halfway out of position the past couple of years since they signed Tate, and I, I think he's capable of quite a lot, quite a lot more – uh, even though he's already he's already proven himself to be pretty good, right? And when I was when I was looking through Golden Tate's, uh, you know, kind of kind of career game log, trying to get a sense of what he's been doing lately, forgot forgot the uh, Golden Tate Eagles era. You remember that one? <laughs> yes, I do. I remember <laughs> it. Was that five games? Something like that. Yeah, I guess the yeah. the desperation playoff push back in 2018, something like that. But uh, regardless, yeah, the, this this all does make the Giants an interesting, uh, you know, potential landing spot for one of these, you know, talented first round receivers. Uh, let's kick it on over to Detroit. So obviously, uh, the Raiders did not finish out the uh, Tyrell Williams big extension from a couple of years ago, only played two years on it and didn't play at all uh, this past year due to that labrum injury uh, and wasn't uh, quite, it wasn't great in 2019, but I, I think there was a lot of problems in, in that Raiders offense in 2019 uh, to begin with. Um, so he goes to Detroit. Is this a signal that, that a Kenny Galladay, we can probably expect him to be on the move and B, you know, what does this fit look like uh, with Tyrell Williams and you know, what, what should be the Jared Goff offense? Well, I think Tyrell's a good player and I, I know he's, and I, I myself have often referred to him as kind of like a downfield guy. Uh, but he's he's capable of some other stuff. He had that really big one year with the Chargers. It's just that he's he is better suited outside than inside, and it's kind of hard to drive truly high target volume to a guy who almost always plays outside. Those 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 kinds of tasks are better handled by guys like Galladay, who I think we would probably rank a, a level or two above. Tyrell Williams. So he's, he's a really good role player on the outside and he's reliably efficient. He's always been kind of a, you know, nine, 10 yards a target kind of guy, but he's also the kind of guy that you struggle to get more than five or six targets a game. Cause some of those, some of those plays are just hard to open up and you need, you need like a borderline elite talent to, to get open reliably on those kinds of throws. It's stuff that, you know, Galladay's and Mike Evans's can do and not many others. So I think he's got kind of a limited ceiling from that angle and as far as Galladay goes, like, I don't think the $6 million they're paying Tyrell will preclude them keeping Galladay. They could just imagine it as a three-wide offense with, uh, you know, Galladay, Tyrell, and I guess Quintus Cephas in the slot, which would be a pretty nice setup because you got, you know, speed on the outside, length on the outside, making the safeties pay attention to that, which can drive open space. Not so much for Cephas, I guess, but definitely DeAndre Swift, you know, that... If, they, if they're pushing those safeties back, that's how you lend some further credibility to the idea of using DeAndre Swift like Alvin Kamara. You need that space open, and as much as Tyrell isn't an obvious threat on every play, the defense still has to run with him. They can't just let him go. So I don't think Goff can really uh, actualize the threat. Like I don't think he can capitalize on it very much, but the defense has to run with Tyrell, and if he only has a decoy function, 
it's not great. It's not good for his fantasy utility, obviously, but it would be good for the overall health of the Detroit offense. Okay, that that definitely uh, makes some sense there. So Detroit and that that how that receiving core shapes up. We'll we'll know a little bit more about that uh, in a couple weeks once the new league year uh, gets underway. Let's go ahead and shift gears over to uh, some rookie running backs. We want to get the record straight on a couple of them. Uh, let's lead things off with with Travis Etienne, someone that that. Uh, I targeted, I'm in a best ball currently, a slow draft, and uh, emphasis on slow, it's taking forever. We're like a couple days in and maybe six rounds in or something like that, so not great. But um, I went ahead, and and we talked about this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about uh, a best ball draft where I I led off um, with like Jonathan Taylor and Austin Eckler. This time I picked a little bit later, Um, I had the ninth pick. Went with Nick Chubb and DeAndre Swift, uh, so my, my Georgia homerism coming out uh, fully. Um, but if you remember from, from last time, I went ahead and kind of reached on Terry McLaurin with my third pick, and we discussed the idea of just maybe really hammering down on running back. So I wanted to explore that. So I went with Travis Etienne as my third pick, and that that is above – ADP, but I, I did feel like he was the better option relative to some of these other uh, receivers that were available. AJ Brown and Darren Waller, once again, were, were off the board. So I went after Travis Etienne. Um, what is kind of your, your thoughts on, on him at that range versus, you know, maybe where his, his current ADP lies and, and, you know, what what's the latest on him, really? So I'm definitely a big Etienne fan. I, I kind of knew I would be uh, probably one of his more emphatic advocates this off season, but I'm surprised at how much so. Like I'm, I thought there would be more appreciation for ETN, and it's kind of almost the opposite. It seems like it seems like there's really a trend of people looking for reasons to doubt him and boost not just Najee Harris, but even Javante Williams over him. And sorry, they're wrong. Like they're they're definitely wrong about the Javante Williams thing. Najee Harris is a good player. I don't know what exactly he is, but I, I think he's good. Um, it's just that his supporters, the, the people who are trying to justify his current valuation, especially in Dynasty, um, they're, they're, they're leaning on these things that just aren't true to justify their stance. It's first, first it was Daniel Jeremiah trying to say, oh, Najee Harris is a lot like Matt Forte. No, he isn't. If that's what you need to be true for your, for your belief to add up, then it won't add up. You're just wrong about it. So then it changed to, oh, well, he's a lot like Steven Jackson. He is kind of, he, he's more like That's Steven the one Jackson that I see a, a little bit. Runners, but he's mm-hmm. not exactly like Steven Jackson because Steven Jackson was a very particularly built player. Like he was like 6'2", 241, and he ran a 4.55 at the Oregon State Pro Day, which is probably something like a 4'6", 4.61, 4.59, something like that at the Combine. But a 6-2-240 with that particular 40-yard uh, dash is not a common kind of athlete. And it sets a high bar for uh, Harris to, to reach to, to get that same sort of – to justify that same sort of comparison because he's about uh, – he's, he's three-eighths of an inch taller than Steven Jackson was, but he's 11 pounds lighter. And I know people look at stuff like that and they think it's tedious or that it doesn't matter, but it does matter. When you're, when you're shorter than someone – and, and you're still 10 pounds heavier than them, you have a lot more anchor momentum than they do. Like, they they may well be a big person. Najee Harris is a big guy. He's big by running back standards. But he's not dense, and he doesn't have anchor momentum the way Steven Jackson did. Not unless he adds 11 pounds, and not, a, not unless at 11 pounds heavier, he is still as fast or faster than Steven Jackson was. 
that's all just true. Like you, if, if, if you want to make the Steven Jackson comparison, those things need to be like that too. So if he's, if he needs to be justified by being compared to players that he doesn't compare to, I'm wondering what it is that everyone's looking at exactly other than each other and everybody else's rankings, which I'll just say, Najee Harris is the workhorse. You got to go with him. It's like, how many workhorses have you seen in the NFL who are 6'2", 230? I don't remember any. It's like the, the we got, uh, it's like it, the, the, the closest things are guys like Steven Jackson and like Latavius Murray, who's more like 6'3", 220 and runs a 4'4". So there's, there's way, like Latavius Murray was very nearly a really good starting running back. And Najee Harris may well be the closest thing to Steven Jackson. But with ETN, you can look at a case like especially Jamal Charles, and it's pretty difficult to distinguish them. Like if you're looking at what they did in college and what they are expected to be anyway athletically, uh, it's like Jamal Charles was really fast, but he ran something like a 4.38 at probably like 195, something like that. So if ETN just runs like a 4.42 or a 4.45 at, I don't know, 204 or something like that, that's a pretty similar sort of athleticism, size-adjusted athleticism. And in terms of the college production, it's just not even close. Like, there's, it's insane how good ETN has been. And when his critics try to compare him to other players, they can't really do it. Like, no one can say who has produced, like, ETN. And, I, it, and what I'm specifically talking about is four years of stuff like seven-plus yards per carry with a touchdown every – I don't know, uh, like 10 attempts. Mm -hmm. Because if you're talking that many yards per carry, particularly with that much touchdown production, it's like you have to remember, in effect, like the the the, the adjusted yardage per, per carry in that case is more like eight and a half, nine yards. And it's true that you had somebody like Daryl Henderson, who I still think will turn out good. It's just he's he's not going to fit this very particular vision that, that McVay has with his outside zone run his exclusively outside zone run offense it's like maybe maybe henderson can't play there but even henderson as far as he goes had his 8.9 yards per carry over fewer carries like it's, it was two years instead of four and there wasn't the touchdown production that there was with etn and particularly in the case of javante williams it's like you guys just got to have better attention spans because he came into this year and carter too like they, they came in with decent enough numbers like they're they're fine prospects uh, but they're just mid-round talents to me, unless Javante Williams surprisingly runs like a 4-5-2. But he was a two-star recruit at safety. Uh, if he was an athlete, I don't know why they would move him to running back. They would just keep him at def uh, defensive back or something like that. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he'll test well in a way that I haven't seen. But they're willing to remove basically three years of Travis Etienne being incomparably productive for a sample of about seven games, more or less, where North Carolina was playing against some of the most memorably weak defenses of, of recent memory at the very least. And, you know, it's like, why, why is Javante Williams getting more credit for, for seven or eight games than Travis Etienne got for the prior three years, where even in the, the one year that Javante had his spike, it wasn't close to what Etienne was doing. So people are getting just kind of cabin fever, I guess. I don't know what it is, but this happens every year. It's like people just can't maintain perspective. I think Javante Williams is pretty clearly just like a, He's like a Zach Moss kind of player, which is good. But it's like, I would have criticized Zach Moss if people were talking about him going over Jonathan Taylor, you know? Yeah, and yeah. ETN is, ETN is that class of player. ETN is a Jonathan Taylor level prospect. Not as good, or, or I, I wouldn't expect him to be quite as good. Um, I guess if ETN runs like a 4-3-2-40 or something surprising like that, I might have to reconsider and say mm -hmm. maybe he is as good or better than Taylor. Um, but in the meantime, I think Taylor is clearly like, you know, he's going to be an all-pro for a long time, all-decade type 
But ETN, his objective comparison is Jamal Charles, and that has already worked in the NFL. You don't need to strain to see how he can do it. It's already been done, and he fits the, the template. Yeah, he, he's an unbelievable player, had been, like you said, for, for four years at, at Clemson. Um, you know, I, you almost wish that either he came out last year or, you know, like, you, like you're saying, the, the lack of, you know, contextualizing his entire body of work at Clemson is frustrating. Uh, you know, th- this past year, he still almost runs for 1,000 yards on, on way less than, than 200 carries, um, racks up 14 rushing touchdowns, really impressive as a receiver, catching 48 out of 60 targets um, for almost 10 yards a target. That's really hard to do as a running back. Uh, yeah, he's, he's catching the last few years like 80-plus percent at almost 10 yards a target. That's that's way above the team baseline, and it's objectively it, – it's it's really good by conventional uh, standards, you know? So it's like – people people talk about how he, he, he's – or at least like a lot of the people justify Harris over ETN by saying, oh, well, ETN can't get three-down work. It's like he definitely can get yes. three-down work. You're taking the liberty of assuming he can't take on much of it. But he can play three downs as convincingly as anybody. Yeah, and he was ta- he was keeping you know f- other five star prospect guys at Clemson on the sidelines because of of how good he was for his own right. Whereas just like there's no point in giving carries to anybody else. Yeah, so I, I added this up last night. The other Clemson running backs when he was there, uh, the four years he was at Clemson, the other Clemson running backs, oops, took uh, 823 carries for 4,760 yards and 53 touchdowns. ETN took 686 carries for 4,952. That's, uh, what, like 190 more yards and 70 touchdowns, which is 17 more touchdowns. So 190 more yards and 17 more touchdowns on 136, 137 fewer carries. 137 fewer carries, 190 more yards, 17 more touchdowns. So I could, I could understand someone being worried, like, Maybe Clemson just was too good of an offense. Maybe Trevor Possibly. Lawrence being there made it easy for uh, Travis Etienne. But why didn't it make it easy for anyone else? Mm-hmm. That Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, some other stats I, I found uh, to, to, you know, back up Travis Etienne being as good as he is. Um, Sports Info Solutions, they, they've got some interesting data. Um Yards at, and they do a comparison between ETN um, and and Najee Harris. Um, ETN scored better in terms of yards after contact per attempt. So I think that that bucks the narrative because I think everyone would think because Harris is a much larger dude that his yards after contact would be better. Uh, his broken tackle percentage was better. ETN's was and his yards per attempt between the tackles almost a full yard better. Five point eight yards uh, per attempt between the tackles for ETN as compared to four point nine for Najee. Harris, who was running behind uh, the the whatever the Joe Joe Moore Award, whatever the the uh, award is for best offensive line in the country. So, just a couple yes. other things added in there. And I want to mention one more time on Javante Williams. I've seen people. I think it must have been PFF because who else uh, was posting something about how he was he was forcing the most missed tackles per carry. And one thing is pretty apparent to me when I turn on Javante Williams's tape. And it, yes, I see him breaking tackles but I also see him getting caught by tempted tacklers, you know? And it's great to be able to break a tackle in, in a vacuum. Breaking a tackle in the ACC with the quality of defenses they've had had this year particularly, and I especially think of that Miami game. Oh, God, How embarrassing. How much of that production was just from that one game where the defense just quit? It's not even a question of whether they were good or bad. They didn't show I mean, Mike, Michael Carter had 200 yards in that game, too. 
Right. I think at the very least, people who want to say Javante Williams is better than Travis Etienne would be inconsistent if they didn't say Michael Carter is also better than Etienne. And no one quite everyone, people will feel stupid saying that. And it's because not because it's any further of a reach than Javante Williams over Etienne, but just because they don't have the social validation in doing it. There aren't thousands of people in Dynasty Twitter with the same rankings as them telling them it's okay to think Michael Carter is better than Etienne. They wait for it to look. They wait, they wait. They basically wait for the agenda to be set by the biggest voices, the biggest websites in the dynasty community, and then they make their rankings. They don't believe anything on their own. But if they did, they would have the exact, just as much justification to say Carter over ETN as they do Javante Williams. And uh, Javante Williams, last thing, they should have learned about David Montgomery already. They should have remembered breaking tackles is fun to watch on tape. It's not great if you need to do it to get five yards. Yep. If you need to get, if you need to break five tackles to get five yards, you're moving too slow. There we go. There we have it. Um, one other guy to get to as far as these rookie runners go, and, and great stuff on Javante um, there specifically. Again, we think he's a good prospect. You know, it's not like we're hating on him. It's just the the sort of overdoneness uh, of the hype is, you guys, is running away. You guys got to watch some Greg Jones tape or something. They're <laughs> acting like a broken tackle in the ACC has never happened before. Why don't you go watch a real one do it? See, there we have it. Um, let's get on over to Kylan Hill, someone who uh, is kind of just really, really outside this is of, an interesting you know, I'm not trying there's to more, like pump us up too much, but like, I don't hear a lot of other people talking about Kylan Hill right now. So spread the gospel. Well, you might remember going into this year and, and even two years ago when he was a sophomore at Mississippi State, the Devi dynasty community was pretty high on Kylan Hill. They were talking about him as like one of the best running back prospects in college football. And then Mike Leach got hired as coach at Mississippi State. And then Kylan Hill said he wasn't going to play for Mississippi State unless Mississippi changed the state flag. And then he opted out after three games. And then I heard someone helpfully pointed this out to me on Twitter because the other day I was asking, like, why are you people ranking Kylan Hill so low? I know you didn't have him ranked this low a year ago. What changed? And uh, you get it, so you get some people saying generic things that aren't true, like, oh, he, he's not good enough as a pass catcher. Like, you're just telling me you didn't watch his tape, which is fine. You, it, this stuff is, you know, it's tedious to, to, to pour over these details. I could understand someone just having the question like can he catch passes but when you say he can't i know you haven't watched him yes because especially you just didn't watch that one lsu game from this year because he put on a clinic on how to run routes downfield and how to catch passes and not that i know much about it but he, to me he looked pretty good in blitz pickup like he he, he definitely got some good shots on uh, the lsu blitzers so uh when i when i watch him aside from that i, I think you know frame wise 510 511 214 whatever he looks a lot like miles sanders Probably not as fast. Like he doesn't. He looks more like a four, five, eight kind of four, six, something like that. Because he doesn't really pull away from the defense in in, the, in a long range. But he's really good at you know chopping his feet. He 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 changes anchor to explosiveness really well. Changes directions really well. Plays with a ton of motor, and he's caught passes after after playing in this like air raid version of the offense for three games. But then his stock falls. The people who said, oh, well, he needs to move up in the rankings, uh, or he, if he wants to move up in the rankings, he needs to get better as a pass catcher, gets better as a pass catcher. Then he lowers in the rankings. So what happened? Well, it's uh, like, turned if he, out— What if he, like, suffered a season-ending injury after three games? Like, what, would we, like, almost be more forgiving? Well, we would, as it turns out, because—or this is what this is how I'm reading it. And some people probably think I'm paranoid. Well, I am paranoid, but some people probably think I'm just like straight up hysterical and unreasonable and stuff. But I have a, like I have a journalism background and th this, 
this stuff that happens behind the scenes is sometimes easier to figure out than people think. Like they think sometimes like, oh, there's just no way to know what's going on behind the scenes. The, the people who are scouts and front office people in the NFL and college football coaches are not the Illuminati. They are simple people. They, they are oftentimes some of the dumbest people in the world. And you don't need to, to think that hard to figure out sometimes what's going on. And I think this is one of those cases because everyone seemed to like Kylan Hill. And then he talked about the Mississippi flag and Mike Leach was hired. Mike Leach is a guy with very reactionary worldview. He did not like what Kylan Hill said. I can assure you that he really did not like it. He probably was offended. He probably thought that he was, uh, you know, being unpatriotic or something. And he probably felt some need to discipline him for behaving that way. And Kylan Hill is the kind of guy who will not put up with it. He'll, he'll just say like, fine, I'll opt out. And so we hear uh, all of a sudden, uh, or at least I didn't hear this. I just, I just, uh, some, someone helpfully pointed out on Twitter, well, there's actually character concerns with him. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And I looked around. And there's something about how in high school, as a sophomore in high school, Kylan Hill was like running with the wrong crowd or something. And his coach at the time had to take him on a car ride and say like, look, you got to get your life together. You, you got so much talent. You got to make it work. And the story goes, and by all accounts, based on what happened afterward, it's true. He got everything together and he, he stopped hanging out with those people and he got really focused on football. But the people who are talking about his character concerns were not referencing that story. They're referencing what Dane Brugler and Lance Zierlein said on a podcast. Now, it doesn't really matter that much, but I, I know a few things about their worldview too. And what it sounds like to me is Mike Leach's people have been slandering Kylan Hill to credulous reporters who they trust to tell them or tr trust to say what they tell them. So I could just be wrong. I don't know. But I have a few reasons to believe that those guys do have a worldview qu quite a bit like Mike Leach's. And Lance Zierlein does have connections to old NFL power. Mike Leach is definitely the old guard at this point. I think Mike Leach, in retaliation for the opt-out, uh, which was precipitate, precipitated by his distaste over Kylan Hill's attitude about protesting the Mississippi flag, and now he's going to the press to try to slander him. He's trying to get back at him. And if, if I'm wrong, I challenge anyone to issue some sort of substantive criticism of Kylan Hill's character because mm. he can't find it. And right. at the very least, they could have made themselves more credible by referencing the high school quote from his high school coach. That's not what they're referring to. They're just saying vague things that they didn't say a year ago about how he's a bad teammate. So conclude what you will. I've definitely concluded what I will. Yeah, I mean, um, are, that it's it's very like frustrating the the way that you know you you have it laid out there because I mean that that's just kind of completely unfair for for Hill to you know have a position like he does and to you know kind of get backdoor slandered uh, by his coach I mean does anyone you know say say character concerns about Chuba Hubbard but you know for for they, they will though they will yeah, yeah for for you know threatening like to not play over the OAN shirt yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but the thing is the thing about Hill is like I don't think Gundy's the kind of guy like I think Gundy cares enough about Oklahoma State's brand that he wants Hubbard to get drafted high. I think I think Leach is a more belligerent person who doesn't really care, and and um, he probably thinks he's like saving the United States or something. Like he's he's just a goofy guy who doesn't understand what's going well, on. He, did, in the he world. just had an intern slap his phone out of his hand this morning when he was tweeting. He tweeted just Dr. Seuss this morning. I'm not going to add anything further on on <laughs> he that. Only, he just tweeted Dr. Yeah, Seuss. Yeah, that was it. That was a. And then, <laughs> that was and a, then the Illuminati put him in a van, and we haven't heard from him yep, since. Have oh, not, thanks for thanks for fighting for freedom for us, Mike. 
Um, yeah, we we were so we're so lucky to have Mike protecting us from uh, evil in the world. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think Kylan Hill, at the very least, we we need a better explanation for why people went from saying he's good to basically blacklisting him. He, like he, it's exactly. not in the Colin Kaepernick sense, but it's just like people are just it's like. People are saying, "Oh, Dane Brugler heard there's character concerns. We gotta watch. Can't can't take him out." And there, I will say, there is a risk that he will get Kenny Stills. Like there is that risk. Kenny Stills fell to the fifth round of his draft because he's an outspoken, independent person, and basically, like there was a photo of him cross-dressing, and that's why he fell to the fifth round of his draft. And his attitude probably had something to do with why New Orleans moved on from him, even though he was insanely productive uh, as a rookie and second-year player. But it would have to be him getting Kenny Stills. It would have to be that. And in the meantime, the talent doesn't seem to have much of a – like a, a short of the top-end speed, yes, like that's that's true. But I don't think that's enough to say that he isn't worth like a second, third, fourth-round pick. Uh, and if he does go in the first four rounds, and even if he goes in the fifth, like he's going to make somebody in training camp look a lot worse than him. Yes. Somebody that people are saying, oh, well, they have better draft capital. They can't uh, – if the coach gives him a fair chance at the rep, he's making some guys look bad. He just is. Like – Kylan Hill is so much better of a prospect than someone like DJ Dallas, who went in the fourth round last year. He's a better prospect than Keyshawn Vaughn, who went ahead of Zach Moss. Hmm. Who I think we just, I think we could, we will look back in a year and think like, oh yeah, Javante Williams was a lot like Zach Moss. Kylan Hill is better than the guy who went ahead of Zach Moss, even though I do think Zach Moss should have clearly gone against uh, ahead of Keyshawn Vaughn. But Kylan Hill is way better than Keyshawn Vaughn, in my opinion. And uh, if if people are thinking of Kylan Hill as something like a borderline undrafted guy, then I th- I think they've lost the plot. To- totally. And again, to to underline it, uh, you know, a guy that took on 242 carries in the SEC in 2019, racked up 1350 yards or 1350 yards, 10 touchdowns. Uh, again, the only really qu- question about him coming into his senior season, it was a bit surprising for for him to even return after as good of a junior yeah. season as he had. The question was, is he going to be able to catch passes? How is he going to fit in this Mike Leach offense? And lo and behold, even in a, in a short sample, three games, he still racked up 23 catches on 29 targets for 237 yards and a touchdown, including eight catches for 158 um, and a score against LSU in that in that crazy opening game. So yeah, I, I think he checked that box pretty emphatically and only needed three, only really needed one game uh, to, to, you know, uh, silence the doubters as far as his ability, uh, as far as that is concerned. He's a, he's a smart guy. If you look up Kylan Hill's interviews, he's a really smart guy. And if, if people want to talk about him, like if, if people make reference to him being a bad teammate, but don't say specifically what I think you need to like, I could just be wrong. Like maybe he really is a bad teammate, but if they can't say why, then you need to be on the lookout for subtext. And it's pretty obvious what the subtext would be in this case. You don't need to think hard about it. We know Mike Leach doesn't like what he's about. And we know a lot of people in the South don't like what he's about, but he is a good player. And if they wanted to say he's a bad teammate, they could have found a time to say it before when he just coincidentally pissed off a bunch of people who hate his politics. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, come got to come a little bit stronger than that. Um, let's get on over to our final segment of the show, um, kind of navigating these mid round receivers. So once you get outside the fifth, 
sixth round in redraft. Um, it it kind of opens up into a strange area. I mean, it, it's just a lot different um, than it was uh, this time a year ago, a lot of different names being being thrown in the mix. Um, so obviously we talked about Brandon Ayuk a, l- a little bit at the beginning as kind of a, a jumping off point, but uh, some other guys that I, I wanted to get your opinions on Obviously, you're one of the bigger Will Fuller uh, fans that I know. Um, Fuller, his ADP uh, just outside of the uh, fifth round, going 62, pick 62 roughly. Going to miss at least one game due to that suspension, it looks like. Um, Depending on on what Houston does, um, he either is going to be back in Houston with no Deshaun Watson or he's going to be on another team. So those are two, you know, kind of important details. But he's also coming off, you know, what you could say pretty – easily is is his best season as a pro on a per game basis I mean 11.7 yards per target eight touchdowns in 11 games and if you're allowed to say it only dropped four percent of his passes so he kind of uh fixed that issue the, the only one that people love to just like really overweight when it when it comes to Will Fuller so what yeah. are you doing with, with him right now with, with the the details you know kind of kind of at odds with each other where he's coming off of such a great season but there are a lot of unknowns right now yeah, I can't really fault anyone for fearing, you know, a bad case outcome. Uh, staying in Houston with a franchise tag sounds like the worst case scenario to me because I happen to think, and maybe this is just me being wishful in my thinking, but I think Deshaun Watson is going to get traded. I think uh, something along the lines of Deshaun Watson is too valuable to the NFL at large. He's too valuable to the other owners, in a sense, for them to let some new money up-jumped little punk like Jack Easterby just end the guy's career for a year, you know? Like, I don't... I know that traditionally the owners are... uh, Like, the owners have so much absolute power that they can't be forced to do anything. Jack Easterby is not an owner, and I bet they can cause some sort of problem for Cal McNair if if they really want to via Jack Easterby. Like, I, I just wouldn't be surprised if that guy's got something they can pinch him on. So... There's there's some way that they can make that team move Watson, even if they mean these things where they're like, we just won't let him play then. It's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> that's that's a risky road to go down. Um, and I, I kind of think they won't uh, in the end. So they, they could trade Watson and then put a franchise tag on Fuller, and that would just be the worst case scenario. I mean, granted, if they got someone like Tua from Miami, that wouldn't be so bad. But I don't want to know, you know, what they what they end up with that quarterback uh, otherwise, and it, it, it's it's not going to be anywhere near Deshaun Watson. And as much as I am a big Will Fuller fan and always have been, I would have to concede that he works exceedingly well with with Deshaun Watson specifically. And yeah. there's not a guarantee that he works quite as well with anyone else. So I guess the best case scenario is Deshaun Watson gets traded somewhere, and then that team signs Will Fuller in free agency, and that could very well happen. It's just how the hell could we possibly know right now? And when you have to pass over some other player who you who you have a lot of reason to like too, who you know where they're playing and who they're catching passes from and who they're competing with for targets, it's tough to pull that trigger. And you know the two drafts I'm in, I haven't done it yet. Uh, but I, if we get some sort of intel that like you know the Packers are zeroing in on him or something like that, then I'd be like, oh god, and I'd you know try to get some shares as fast yeah. as I could, and it'd probably be too late. But um, yeah, I don't know how else to handle it, you know. Yeah, so he, he's he's difficult one, and I I think that he's yeah I guess if you're optimistic about where it lands, then his ADP is pretty favorable right now. But it, it's hard to. 
be particularly optimistic, I think, at, at this stage because, you know, like you said, it, it could end up poorly where he gets anchored with a bad quarterback somewhere, namely Houston, and then, you know, th- you know it, it goes really off the rails at that point. Um, but if, if he goes to somewhere like Green Bay, then we're going to see him go, you know, inside the, you know, inside the top 50 uh, pretty quickly. Um, let's get on over to, to Robbie hey, Andrews. Yep. Keep talking. I'm going to be right back. I have to pick up my dog. She's licking her paws, and I, I don't want her to do that. Uh, very good. Very good. Um, so the, the next guy that we're going to get into um, once Mario returns is Robbie Anderson, uh, obviously of the, of the Carolina Panthers. Hello, Dulce, making her uh, – yes. uh, This is this is Dulce the dog. Um, she likes to lick her paws until they get raw, and I have to – Oh yeah, got, sometimes. got to keep an eye. No, totally understand. It's good to practice responsible dog uh, practices here. Especially has an AJ Brown jersey. Oh hell yeah, that that is awesome and just a, a wonderful face as well. Hello, Dulce, um, Robbie Anderson. So obviously coming off of a really strong season last year, I think it went way above where I was expecting. You know, the Carolina offense. I, I really thought that Teddy Bridgewater. Plus, Robbie Anderson, it wasn't going to work, especially with the way that Robbie Anderson, his roles previously with the Jets. But as we discussed a lot during the season, they kind of changed uh, Anderson and DJ Moore's functions where, where uh, Curtis Samuels, mm. they, they had they had Curtis Samuel running outside and downfield uh, two years ago, and then they moved him just to the slot um, or mostly to the slot. But yeah, Robbie played underneath quite a bit more with, than with the Jets, too, and did pretty dang good. I don't I mean, he looked pretty real to me. Yes, exactly. So, you know, ca- catching 95 of 136 targets, um, you know, a, a decent A dot, but but nothing crazy downfield. 8.1 yards per target right in line with, with his career norms. Um, but we're looking at an offense here in Carolina where we, we're probably going to have Teddy Bridgewater again uh, unless – you know, some something kind of seismic changes. Um, we're likely not going to have Curtis Samuel in this offense, and then we're we're kind of also going to have a reintroduction of, of Christian McCaffrey um, into this offense. And and uh, you know, we know that he saw a fair amount of targets when he was playing this past season. But all told, you know, kind of what is your view of this uh, Carolina receiving core? And, and you know, are you getting shares at cost right now for Robbie Anderson? I. I'm interested in doing it. I haven't had the chance yet, but he's, I think, more likely to be underrated than, uh, you know, overpriced because people, I understand why they do it, but people are too committed to draft capital type frames of talent evaluation. And they think, they look at things like, uh, you know, undrafted guys who had big seasons usually fell off after their big seasons and stuff like that. And that's, that's definitely stuff you want to be aware of. But the proper context here is that you are basically lumping in Robbie Anderson with a group of people who are not similar to him because Robbie Anderson didn't go undrafted for talent reasons. He went undrafted for character reasons. Like he got kicked out of Temple for academic troubles. And uh, before, like he only had like one big year there, had the academic troubles. And he, he was also skinny, to be fair. Like he's 6'3, 185, which. Um, you know, he showed that you can be too skinny. I, I would use quotes, but Dul says, uh, licking my hand. Um, but yeah, you, you can be too skinny and get away with it if you're fast like Robbie Anderson. And even playing underneath, like he did a lot of, um, he, he wasn't like the slot guy, but he was kind of like their second slot guy after Curtis Samuel. And when you run trips and when you run four wide, you end up running in the slot eventually in that role. And he did good with it. Like he, he was effective as a mid-range receiver after being a downfield specialist 
uh, with the Jets. So he was a talented guy all along. Like he's always been really fast. He's always been really productive. And if if you're fading him because he's undrafted, like you gotta keep, you gotta at least control. Like like you have to start. I don't know how you would how you would do it exactly, but you would have to eliminate the guys who went undrafted just because they weren't very good. You know, you can't have. You can't have Robbie Anderson be in the same sample as Mike Furry or something like that. It's just not similar. And you, you, need, to, you need to keep in mind circumstantial reasons why guys can go undrafted or go later. Like the character reasons, off-the-field stuff, medical stuff. There are oftentimes pretty simple explanations for why these things happen. And in Robbie Anderson's case, it couldn't be clearer, in my opinion. Exactly. And, you know, there's a reason why he was, you know, priority free agent last year. So, yeah, I think I think it's time probably to to move off of any sort of like draft capital analysis when, when it comes to Robbie Anderson. He's clearly a legitimate NFL player, obviously going inside the top 100 of fantasy drafts. Um, and with good reason passes last year yes like come on now and uh i don't understand or i don't love that he only had three touchdowns but uh maybe that's a sign that you know he's due for a little bit of positive regression because three on 136 yeah exactly so uh maybe get he he gets a little bit more loose this year and then those touchdowns uh start coming in droves a little bit more uh last guy i want to talk to you about is Cortland Sutton because Denver is an interesting, interesting offense because it's got so much talent. Almost, you could almost say that it's crowded, but oh, we we have a bad quarterback situation. But we have Cortland Sutton who kind of proved to be a future alpha in his second season. Obviously, gets hurt yeah, awesome. v- very early in the year. Last year, you got Jerry Judy, you got Noah Fant, you got KJ Hamler, all those guys ascending talents to varying degrees. But again, you know, you figure that Sutton, even though he's coming off the ACL, will kind of re- regain his alpha uh, role in the, in this offense. But you still, as it stands, you know, you have a guy in Drew Locke who I don't think can really support all of those guys. So it's got to come at the cost of one of them. Um, you know, and, and does that start to affect Sutton and, and does that kind of drive you away from him at, at his current ADP? So I feel like Sutton's price is deflated enough that uh, the, the risk doesn't really matter that much to me because he's he's a guy who we would be taking as high as like the second round if he was in a good situation. And you can get him in what, like the fifth kind of range right now. I, I know in the... Um, the one league that I the, the FFPC you can get drafted. you can get him very late. Uh, his his ADP I'm looking at right now is like 91 or something. Okay, so yeah, like late seventh or something. So that or early eighth. Um, that's that's really late. That's too late for him. He's he's a really good player, and I I guess I can understand the fear of of Denver being too crowded, but if Denver's too crowded, that's more of a problem for. Maybe Jerry Judy, but definitely more so Tim Patrick, Noah Fant. Uh, I guess KJ Hamler. KJ Hamler is probably like at least a year away from from being able to stand out in a group like that. He, he doesn't even turn 22 until like August, so he's he's undersized and, and younger than them. He can't really run with them. And Tim Patrick, uh, that would be a better better case of like when to be skeptical for uh, dra- draft capital reasons like he's, he's a decent player at the very least and he might even be quite good um but he is the kind of guy who cannot compete with talents like judy and Cortland sutton especially over a longer sample so uh, i think i think sutton is just 
he's too much of an alpha receiver for, for the crowd to mean much for him. Like it's not, mm. it's not him whose role is negotiable. It's, it's everybody else. And I think Judy will win. Like I know I can understand why some people are low on Judy. I'm actually higher on him than I thought I would be after his rookie year. Uh, I was, I really hated the landing spot and I, I was a little bit concerned about some details of his play, but he, he's been really convincing. I think in hindsight, uh, despite his ups and downs and it's, it's everybody else who, who's at risk of getting pushed to the background. And so after you, if, even if you satisfy the concern about the share of the targets, though, it's fair to worry about the quality of the targets and whether whether Sutton can do much with them. And that would normally be fair enough kind of thing. But uh, who was the quarterback the year before that? I can't remember who it was. It's, it was it's like, someone bad. It was like half Drew Locke, a little bit of uh, – I take, I take offense to that. It was a little Joe Flacco. Oh, Joe Flacco. Right. <laughs> so Sutton already had an insanely good year with trash at quarterback. And so – like it's not great that he has to play with trash or that he might have to play with trash, but a he's shown he can already deal with it. And B what if, I mean, I'm still high on Sam Darnold, so I, I can get, I understand why this doesn't sound any better to, to some people, but if they add Sam Darnold, I think that offense goes basically nuts mm. right away. Like I, I think, I think Darnold goes from just like, it's literally twice as good production uh, with a team like that. And you know, not, also, Albert Aquegbanum is a real problem, and I know people haven't really haven't looked at him closely enough, especially with Fant there. I understand why why people just click click skip on him, but Albert Aquegbanum is a beast, and they they got just so much firepower. They should really do an air raid offense. Yeah, they they like you said have a ton um, of of yeah, just ridiculous it's amounts of talent depth. They got tall guys. They got fast, small, quick guys. They got Jerry Judy, who's in between El- uh, Albert, who's you know ridiculous, oversized, over, over fast. They can they can threaten all corners of the field and everything in between every play if they want to. Yep, they just they need to unlock it at quarterback. Um, and do the right no, thing, Mister no, Elway. No pun intended. There. Um, all right, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Rotowire NFL podcast featuring Dulce. Tremendous, tremendous guest appearance there. Um, We will catch you guys next week.